Look in the Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 through 43 with Pastor John King. Thanks, Pastor John. Good morning, everybody. Today, we are in Daniel chapter 2, continuing on. We'll be in verse 28 through 43, Daniel chapter 2. While you're turning there, we'll talk a little bit about what's been going on as we've been going through our study. Um, Last week with the king's decree, King Nebuchadnezzar to kill all the wise men in his kingdom, there would be no exceptions. It also included Daniel and his companions, but we got to see how Daniel responded, how how he reacted when his life was on the line. Remember, Daniel is a great example for all believers as a man of God. Daniel provided us with an application of his wisdom and tact combined with the full confidence in God's power to do the impossible. And he he, he promised that he would be able to provide the content and the meaning of the king's dream. Remember, the king had this terrible dream, this this awesome dream. He didn't understand what was going on, and he wanted to test his advisors. So he said, you tell me, advisors, all you astrologers and magicians, tell me my dream, and then, of course, give me the interpretation. Now, Daniel did declare that this supernatural dream interpretation is only possible by the mercy of God and by his sovereign control over the times. He said the times, the seasons, and the worldly rulers of every age and every phase of history. So Daniel keeps highlighting the fact that God is sovereign. And therefore, God deserves our highest praise. Now this week, we will see how Daniel will tell the king what he has seen in his dream, and he's going to give an explanation as to what it means, both for Nebuchadnezzar and all the coming world kingdoms. All the coming world kingdoms. So as we reflect on these passages, it's important that we recognize, again, that God is in control of history. Despite all the evil intents and actions that are in place and in progress to thwart God's plan, God's still in charge. He's still on the throne. And we will also see that as time marches on, man's plan for the world, man's idea of how the world should be, has and will continue to decline even to a point where it can no longer be held together by man's means. And folks, tell me the world we're living in isn't crumbling around us. Setting the stage now for our great hope and expectation for a world that will be finally and thoroughly placed under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. As we go through it, we ask, Lord, that you would once again just soften our hearts for your word, Lord God. Give us ears of understanding. Lord, if, if we need to have something to write down as we hear this message, Lord, and, and take notes to, to keep our memory alive, keep our memory strong of the things of you, Lord, may it be. Lord, just, just let us, Father, again, take this, this bread of life, your word, this food, this, this as milk, let us be hungry as you're just your little children as we humble ourselves before you and we hear your word and we grow and we are equipped to do the work of the ministry. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. And we pray this now in Jesus' name and all God's people said. 
Okay, we're going to go through this, uh, this passage today. I'm not going to read the whole thing up front. We're going to take it in little bites, little chunks, bite-sized pieces. We'll first start out uh, Daniel 2, verses 28 through 30. Here we see that there is a God in heaven. Uh, Daniel writes this. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes to make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So here we see, first of all, Daniel is setting the priority. He said, there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he's made them known to you, O king. He's made them known to you. What it's going to be like for the future history of the world and in the latter days, in the end times. Confirming once again that all the king's wise men could not reveal the secret. Yet unlike the wise men who simply said, oh, we don't know your dream. We don't know your dream. We don't know anybody who could know your dream except maybe our false gods. Daniel came and he declared otherwise. And he begins with a very simple truth. There's a God in heaven. And that's super important for us to remember. As we acknowledge our frailty, we acknowledge our, our limits, if you will, that there's a God in heaven. Hallelujah, we would say. Now you talk about heaven, and, and, and to be sure, Nebuchadnezzar uh, would may have asked what an unsaved person would ask. What do you mean a God in heaven? Uh, what does it look like? What, what heaven are you talking about? Uh, the Bible is, is very clear in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. Paul talks about the fact that there's a third heaven. And so in the, old, in the days of old, people would look at the visible sky, and they would consider that to be the heavens. And then they would look at, at night, the visible stars and the moon. And from a biblical perspective, we can say that the visible sky, the things that we see, the, blue, you know, the wonderful blue sky in our atmosphere, that's, that's the, the first heaven, if you will. And then when you look at night and you see the beautiful stars and the constellation and the planets and all the things that are in the million, billions of stars, that's the second heaven. All these things were made by God, by his hand. But God ab abides above all. He abides in the third heaven. And that's the place that Daniel's talking about. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. In other words, he uncovers mysteries. And he made known what will be in the latter days. Now here we start to enter into prophecy, the prophecy of Daniel, one of the most famous biblical prophecies of all time. In fact, Daniel's, as we said earlier, Daniel's prophecies are so accurate that, uh, you know, biblical critics, if you will, in later years, in later centuries would say that couldn't possibly have been written by Daniel. That had to have been written long after all these events that he's about to declare took place. And so he says, your dream, the visions in your head, what you saw in your mind 
while you sat upon your bed, while you were lying upon your bed. He said, here's what they are. But then he doesn't say what they are. He backs up. And he says, let me explain something very important to you first off, O king. He says in verse 29, as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. Now he's restating for emphasis because Daniel is genuine. He knows what he's saying because he received it from God. He says, as for you, O king, here's how you fit into God's plan. And he's going to say, I'm going to tell you what would come to pass in the future. And the one who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. You see the God in heaven. One writer said it this way. He's, he's getting ready, Daniel is getting ready to tell the king the future. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar must have been shocked when Daniel even told him that he knew that the king had been worrying about the future of the kingdom before he even had his dream. The dream was God's answers to Nebuchadnezzar's concerns. For God revealed the future sequence of the Gentile kingdoms and how the Gentile history would climax with the appearance of the future kingdom, the eternal kingdom. We know that as the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he starts out, let me explain something very important. As for you, here's where you fit into God's plan. You get to have the privilege of knowing the future. Next he says in verse 30, but as for me, as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. You see, Daniel realizes again now he displays humility. Something we need to consider when we realize that we have the truth of the Bible, we have the truth of the scriptures in, right here, and God's placed it in our hearts, but we do not bring it with pride, even though we may have great confidence in what God is telling us. But it's not because of us. It's because God. It's because God has revealed it to us. It's not because we're smarter or better or anything else. Far from it, and we know. Even if Daniel was very bright and very educated, which he was, he would not give credit to himself. He says, I'm not smarter than anyone living. Anyone living. Because it doesn't make me special, in other words, Daniel would say. God is sovereign, and he can even, as we know, can use a donkey. Daniel didn't say this, but we know that God can even use a donkey to speak, right? We know the story of Balaam in Numbers 22, and the donkey and the angel of the Lord. So God is sovereign, and we're no better than anybody else. We just are privileged to know our God and that he will speak through us if we're willing to be used by him. And he says, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king. In other words, for, our, for the reason. The reason why this is all happening, yeah, as for you, Nebuchadnezzar, and as for me, well, God's placed us in this time in history, that he may inform you of the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is explaining that he is simply an instrument of God to be used for God's plan, to make known the dream and its interpretation. Notice Daniel, before he, uh, you know, I said this, but we, we, before he explains the dream and its interpretation, he lays that groundwork. And as we, as we consider this, uh, look, in, look into the... Um, interactions you have with people. When you get ready to tell people about Jesus, when you get ready, uh, 
You, you know, the Lord has given you the courage to finally reach out to that person in your life. Think about the pattern that Daniel gives us here. We know that Daniel refuses to take credit for revealing the secret. But we also know that this thing about the future is not, you know, case as we would say. Whatever will be, will be. Because the Bible is about 30% prophetic. Okay, so fully one-third of our book here speaks of the future. And so the interaction between Daniel and the king illustrates for us a pattern for presenting the gospel message. Because as messengers or instruments of God, we will tell people that there is a God in heaven, that's what we should be doing, and that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to bear our sins on the cross and pay for the, guilt, you know, pay for the guilty condition that we're in, to pay for our sins. And for those, as for you, the king, as for the, and for those, as for those who are willing to hear, we can explain that God has placed eternity in their hearts and he has written his law into their hearts and this is revealed to us by our conscience, knowing right from wrong. And then as for us, we can explain that it's not because we're better or because we're smarter, but we're simply willing and obedient to be a part of his sovereign plan for the world. So notice you know, how, how Daniel is, is really, he's presenting the gospel to Nebuchadnezzar in, in a time prior to Jesus' physical body, his physical appearance on earth. Next, we come to the dream. So having laid that foundation, now here's the dream. Daniel 2, 31 through 35, he says, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Selah. And he says, you, O king, were watching. In other words, a great image. This image or idol, what Daniel was seeing was this great statue before him. And it was splendorous. It was bright. It was brilliant. And it stood before him, and it was awesome. It was in a standing position. Its form and appearance, if you have a King James Version, its form and appearance not was awesome, therefore it was terrible. It was terrible. It was fearful to cause to be afraid. No wonder this guy couldn't sleep at night. No wonder he, he needed to know so badly what this was, because it made a lasting impression on his mind. When we say awesome, you know, it's not that cool wow factor that we like to express awesomeness in a proud sense or even as an overused compliment. 
then what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a giant, powerful-looking statue with the following features. Look at verse 32. We get to the details. The image's head was of fine gold, pure gold. Gold is a metal, is a noble metal. It's one of the most noble metals of all, and it will not tarnish. It does not. No metal has been more frequently mentioned in the Old Testament writings than gold, and none has been more, had more terms applied to it. We will see in scriptures, uh, Babylon is referred to as the golden city in Isaiah 14.4. That you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city has ceased. Next detail is its chest and arms. So it's got this head, this head of fine gold. Next, the details are its chest and its arms of silver. Notice that they're slightly less important. Notice that silver, the metal, is inferior to gold. It can corrode. Silver can corrode. If you've ever had any old silverware, you know that silver can definitely corrode. Next, we see its belly and thighs of bronze. Further down in importance, Bronze, or a King James Version would call brass. It's of lesser value than gold and silver. In fact, it's not pure metal. It's an alloy. It's usually alloyed with copper and zinc. But it's stronger than gold and silver. Verse 33, and going down this statue, it had legs of iron. The, the legs were strong. It's, iron is stronger than the three previous metals, the gold, the silver, and the bronze. Uh, iron is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 4.22. We see uh, Tubal Cain was an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And then notice its feet. Its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. Notice that as we read through these material specifications, so to speak, they become less noble and less refined and ultimately weaker its feet, to be partly of iron and partly of clay. You know, we, anybody that um, has studied this knows that these materials are not compatible. The clay and the iron won't mix. They, they don't adhere to themselves very well. You, you couldn't certainly weld them together. Uh, the, the clay would melt. So in comparison to all the other metals on this great statue, this great image, this one is weak. It lacks durability. It's vulnerable to failure. Next we see an action scene in verse 34. The dust in the wind. He says, you watched while a stone was cut without hands. It was cut out without hands. You saw it, Nebuchadnezzar. You watched. A stone. Uh, all through scripture we see stones as memorials and altars and weapons and building materials. We see the spiritual aspect of Jesus, our rock of salvation. In Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And here we have this stone, and we're going to see, we're going to learn uh, the, 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 just the prophetic implication of this stone. Because it, it does represent Jesus, and it represents Jesus' second coming, and how he will overcome the entire world. And it says it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. You see, this giant stone is being used now as a weapon to strike the weakest part of the image. 
and it broke them into pieces. It was no longer able to carry the weight of the image. It was a total collapse. And then in verse 34, it says, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. Total destruction. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was ever found. Ecclesiastes 1.14 I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Referring to mankind's desire to make his own world apart from God, his own kingdom, his own legacy, if you will. The popular song by Kansas, Dust in the Wind. Some of you didn't know it, I'm sorry, you're going to have to hear it in your mind again. It was written uh, by a, a man who is a Christian, Kerry Livgren. He was the founder of Kansas. And that song, Dust in the Wind, was based on this Ecclesiastes passage. So it's okay to listen to secular music sometimes. At least in my opinion, okay? That's my opinion. And it says that the stone struck the image, became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Wow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, what just happened? I mean, if you're, if you're King Nebuchadnezzar and you're, you're listening to this young Jewish uh, man, this bright young uh, guy in his early 20s, and you're, you're you know, the, the one that you saw a lot of promise in, and now you're, you're receiving the benefits of that, having brought him on board to be part of your administration, this young Daniel. What just happened? Well, to, in summary, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw a large statue of a man, it was an enormous and dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. It was composed of five different materials. We read gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. Suddenly, a stone appeared. The huge stone struck the statue's feet of iron and clay and smashed them. With no foundation under it, the statue collapsed with great force. Its pieces were shattered into minute dust, so minute that the wind swept away all trace of the statue. And then suddenly, where the statue had stood, the huge stone actually began to grow into a huge mountain until it finally filled the whole earth with its presence. Daniel just gave a perfectly accurate account of all the details of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Why? Because there's a God in heaven, and he wanted us to know that. He wants everyone to know that. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he must have been floored. You know, we like to say it's a God thing. Well, Nebuchadnezzar could certainly say that. To reveal the king's dream with such accuracy, the king knew that Daniel was telling the truth and that he could be trusted. Next, we have the interpretation. Now, in the interpretation, we need to understand up front that the image represents the four great empires of the ancient world. And we're going to go through each one of them briefly. But let's read our passage, verse 36 through 43. Now here's the dream. He says, this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. Remember, that's his promise. He was not only going to reveal the dream, but he was going to tell him what it meant. You, O king, are king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Verse 38 
And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them unto your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are his head of gold. You're the one. You're the first kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the first great world kingdom in history. He says, but after that, you're not going to be the only king. Now he's going to set the king down and to sober him up a little bit. <laughs> he's revealed this truth to him, but he also wants him to be humble. And he says, you're not going to be the last king of the earth. He says, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which you shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and so much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. So in verse 36, let's just kind of go through this line by line real quickly here. He said, this is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation. Here's the solution. But notice he says, we. We will tell you the interpretation. He includes his three companions. Because this, what does this do? It adds more, first of all, credibility, as if he needed any at this point. But also to, speaks of the power of Joining together in prayer, something we did this morning. Joining together and seeking the Lord for an answer. And so he gives credit to his companions as well. And he says, you, O king, are king of kings. Not the king of kings and lord of lords, who is Jesus Christ, but you are a king of kings. In other words, you're the most powerful man in the world right now. Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're sit above all. You're head and shoulders above them all. But notice this. The God of heaven has given you that. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom and a power and the strength and the glory. Again, never forgetting God is sovereign. Now, uh, one writer put it this way. Uh, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, he said, Of all the heathen monarchs mentioned by name in the scriptures, Nebuchadnezzar is the most prominent and most important. The prophecies of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the last chapters of Kings and Chronicles centered about his life, and he stands preeminent among the pharaohs and the impression of the Exodus and along with the foes of the kingdom of God. In other words, the Bible dedicates a lot of material to this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And he, in verse 38, he says, look, your, your, your kingdom is also very wide Wherever children of men dwell, you know, people are. Wherever the beasts of the field, that's, those are the kings, the birds of the heaven. You know, if you want to go hunting on the king's land, you're going to, get to have to get his permission, I suppose. And he says, he has given them into your hand. He's made you ruler over them all. He said, you are this head of gold, at the end of verse 38. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was likened to gold because he was an absolute monarchy. Absolute. God's ideal government, Nebuchadnezzar, was not, however, God's ideal monarch, writes one historian. The head of gold, now, is, is what we see. Now, when we look at history, we take our scripture, and then now we look at, and the Bible is a historical document, by the way, so don't think that it's just some other book on the shelf like some people would try to say. But when we look at history, it reveals that Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Babylon Empire, the Babylonian Empire, from 605 B.C. until his death in 562 B.C. The empire itself lasted from 626 B.C. to 539 B.C. 
And as we examine these great world powers, we, can, we need to keep in mind something that's very important. None of them, these four great world powers, actually possessed the entire inhabited earth. We know that. We know that. But each one would have been able to. God gave them that much power that they could have. You know, you can make an argument even to this day. Uh, I'm going to kind of step uh, on a little rabbit trail here. The United States of America, after World War II, had the most powerful army ever known to the entire world. The United States of America, if it was uh, the terrible and evil nation that some people try to say it is, could have been in a position to take over the entire world. Nazi was de Nazism was defeated. The Japanese were de soundly defeated. The Russians had a very weak army at that point. They could have taken over all of the world. Our country could have done so. Now, we're not in the Bible. I know that. But that's not such a stretch to say that an ancient uh, empire that was very powerful could not have had the same ability to take over the entire world. So if somebody tries to argue and say, well, you know, he, wasn't, he didn't possess the entire world. What about all these other lands around the globe? You can say, look, he could, have, he could have taken over. He certainly could have. And he's given them into your hand and made you ruler over all. We see in verse 38 of our passage, if you backed up a little, a couple, a page or so back, he's given them to your hand and he's made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. So he could have been uh, absolute ruler of all the, of the entire earth. Jeremiah 51.7 says, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. <laughs> the nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. That speaks to the authority that the Lord allowed this nation and this dynasty to have over mankind. Quickly, in verse 39, we see the second and third kingdoms. He says, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. When he says inferior, what does he mean? Earthbound, lower than yours. We look at the image. We have to look back at the image and say, which one are we talking about? This is the chest and arms of silver in 32. This refers to the historical dynasty known as the Medo-Persian Empire which lasted from 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. In Daniel 5, 30 and 31, we're going to see that, you know, this, we're going to see the fall of Babylon. We're going to see the Persians take over. We're going to see that Darius the Mede will receive the kingdom at his at 62 years of age. And so we're going to see uh, Daniel's actually going to be through the Babylonian Empire and into the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now again, uh, notice as we look down the image from the head of gold to the silver chest and arms, uh, uh, progressively inferior material. The Medo-Persian Empire was comprised of two groups. They were the Medes and the Persians. So the power wasn't concentrated as it was in Nebuchadnezzar. They had you know, two different uh, groups of people. It may sound good to us because we grew up in a democratic republic, you know, all these different states working together, people from all over the world. But in the ancient world of pagan kingdoms, this was never, ever going to be healthy in the long run. Why? Because they were godless. They were godless empires. Because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, Proverbs 14.34. So you can't build a government apart from God, without it being falling apart and falling into decay. 
The symbolism of the materials decreasing in values does not reflect the quality and the power of the government. Not their wealth and their power. The Roman Empire was fourth in line, but it had much more power and influence over the known world at that time than the other kingdoms did. And even uh, this influence from the Roman Empire still influences our, our modern governments to this day. But the inferior or, or excuse me, the inferiority over time has to do with the declining morality that we see increasing as history moves forward. Rome was destroyed from within because of corruption, high national debt, and rampant immorality, among, among other things. But next we see a third kingdom, the kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. These are the belly and thighs of bronze. This is the Grecian kingdom, which lasted from 330 to 63 BC, during which came the rise of a, a great general known as Alexander the Great, who died at a young age. He died in 323 BC. And it says of, of this kingdom that will rule over all the earth, probably the largest empire in ancient times, when you, when you talk about geography. History records that... Uh, Alexander the Great had 20 major battles, 20 victorious battles from military campaigns that started in Greece all the way through Asia Minor, through modern-day Iran and Afghanistan, as far east as Pakistan and India, and he never lost a single battle. After having died at the young age of 32, his kingdom was divided four ways through his generals. Again, you have this weakening and this, this just sort of this crumbling. It was an inferior kingdom that struggled internally. Finally, we have in verse 40, the fourth kingdom, and that's the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. It says that the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, in so much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. Like the iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. The Roman Empire is famous for, has been famous for centuries. It began in 63 BC and ended in approximately AD 475. David Jeremiah wrote this. He said, This fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, conquered Greece and became the most dominant influ influential kingdom in world history. Rome assumed power in the Mediterranean 50 years before the birth of Christ and ruled Palestine through his ministry and throughout the expansion of the church into the apostolic era. The Roman influence spread farther than any previous kingdom throughout Europe and the British Isles, and they crushed all of their opponents. Next we see the feet of this statue. So we've covered the four uh, great kingdoms. Now we're going to see, look at the feet. If you go down the statue, if you picture it in your mind, you end up with feet made of iron and clay. Why would you do that? This speaks of the revived Roman Empire. This is the future. This is the revived Roman Empire which will be governed by the Antichrist. He says, whereas, in verse 41, you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Again, we said these two elements, clay and iron, cannot be attached together properly for a variety of reasons. You might be able to stick them together, but they're not going to hold very long. This will be, in the future, a federation of nations, not one nation, so that weakens them. 
And even today, you can see back, uh, you look at the EU and the back and forth struggles between the uh, European Union. Uh, they want to hold on to their culture. They want to hold on to their currency. Uh, recently, British, the British folks voted to get out of it. They want to hold on to their nationality. So they're a weak confederation, even though they're, they're powerful economically. And he says, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. So it's going to be strong, just as you saw iron mixed with clay. The iron represents the heavy hand through military might. The clay represents the different human elements, the government officials and citizens from a diverse country and nations. You, you, we've seen it in recent years where you had this, this mass migration from the Middle East into Europe and all the problems that it causes. We see it in our own borders as well. Yet the strength of the iron, it says, now we need to look forward. The federation of nations, this is what we're talking about, these feet of iron and clay, this is going to be a federation of nations governed by the Antichrist. It will be divided empire, it will be like a league of nations with each having its own interest at heart. You know, if you get a bunch of people together just because you're in an organization together and you're not on the same page, you got a bad organization. But because God's going to allow, this is this, this seven-year uh, period of tribulation when the Antichrist makes himself known to the world after the church has been raptured, uh, it's, the, it's the last shot that the enemy has to try and thwart God's plans, and it's not going to go well. In verse 42, And as the toes and feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And whenever you have a conglomeration of nations, some of the nations are strong and some of the nations are weak. Now, when we get to Ch Daniel chapter 7, we're going to study Daniel's dream and Daniel's interpretation, which runs parallel to this dream. So sometimes it's a good idea to study Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. If you're reading and studying at home, try reading them together along with uh, chapter 11 to kind of follow along. Because it's the same story. It's the future of the world given from different perspectives. The federation of nations that will be governed by the Antichrist will include some nations as strong as iron and some as weak as clay. Verse 43. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. In other words, they will not be on the same page ultimately. The federation of nations governed by the Antichrist will be a mix of people who will not remain united any more than iron mixed with clay. We, we could have continued our study all the way through uh, verse 45, but I wanted to give that, uh, this coming kingdom, a little bit more, especially the coming kingdom of Christ, and then Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to all of this. We'll save that for next week, so we're not trying to drink uh, from a fire hose through Daniel. Uh, but... Uh, you know, as we, as we read through this study, uh, and I hope that uh, it's, it's been edifying for you and it's been uh, helpful for you um, to strengthen our faith and to know, first of all, that God's in charge. You know, we're all fully aware of the, the impact of the pandemic and how it's consumed more thought and discussion uh, and, and frustration across the board. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're young and old. Sometimes we look at this pandemic and it seems just like a diabolic distraction, but it's been punctuated by real tragedy and sickness. We've seen that here in our own fellowship. And so we can't deny it's real. 
But hidden in plain sight is the steady decline of our modern society's morality. The older you are, the more you see it, the more apparent that it is, the more visible that it becomes. Consider what this one writer said concerning nations that are built on their own foundations, ungodly foundations. He said, almost all nations or errors can look back over their history and see a general decline in their society's morality. We can do the same. He says, but the cesspool, he uses this kind of strong language. He says, but the cesspool of immorality, lawlessness, violence, greed, selfishness, and oppression that is so prevalent throughout society today all suggests a greater degree of decline in morality than there ever was. What God's holy word calls evil is now called good and acceptable by many people. And most tragic of all, although it has been thousands of years since Christ came to save the world, people still reject, they deny, or even curse the name of God. Perhaps now more than ever. When Paul wrote to Timothy from the Roman jail just before he was executed in Rome, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, he said to Timothy, he said, but know this, that in the last days, Perilous times will come, excuse me, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. Without self-control, they'd be brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. You know, outside, we know what it's like. I mean, you don't even have to interact with people on a personal level. All you have to do is turn on the TV or the social media. And you can see that everybody's against one another. Everybody's on a side, and there's this great divide. It's just, it's just it's maddening for all of us. But when we come here, folks, I really want to encourage you to cherish the time you have in fellowship, wherever, whether this is your home church or you just visit from time to time, or you're listening online. Because we're all on the same page here, folks. We know the story. We know where things are going in the future. But we all know Jesus Christ. I pray that each one of us knows Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. We don't have things to argue about. And if we did, they, are, they seem to be less important now, don't they? And so we are needing to be, you know, take, taking heart in this storm, this madness of the world around us. When we read history through the lens of the Bible... We learn that over and over that apart from God, man cannot govern himself. And there's coming a day when Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on earth and things will never, ever be the same. Now he who is, uh, you know, those of us who are, are his, excuse me, those of us who are his, we know how it ends. Personally, for us, if you're a Christian, first you may experience physical death if you're not raptured. And then immediately you'll be present with the Lord, followed by a glorious resurrection and eternal life. But if you don't know Jesus, and you don't have the ability to share in this blessed assurance, then I would challenge you to seek him and get to the bottom of it. Settle the issue before it's too late, because the alternative is an eternity apart from God in hell's torment. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are living in a time when most institutions are failing to be trustworthy. 
And when it's all political rhetoric and cultural device and thinly failed propaganda, that's the, the place that God has placed us. You know, as for you, O King, well, as for you, Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City, as for me, as for all Christians, God's placed us in this time in history. And guess what? This time we've been called not only to be Christians, or excuse me, call ourselves Christians, but we're called to be the church by following some very simple instructions that the Lord gives us through his word to be used by him. Do you not want to be used by the Lord? I know you, I know you don't even need to answer that. Of course you do. I would exhort you, brothers and sisters, if you want to be used by God, maybe it's time to sit down and spend some time with him. Maybe it's time to repent, to be broken before him. Maybe it's time to deal with our sins because judgment begins in the house of God. Pray to God and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Any work of God attempted in our own capacity is not going to bear fruit. We see that happening through history. Take time for personal interaction. How are your devotions? How's your time with the Lord? How's your time with prayer and his word? And then go and make disciples. Do what Jesus has called you to do. Go out there. Find somebody who is not as mature in the Lord as you are. Come alongside them. Tell others about Jesus. Keep coming to church so you can share in the things of God. This is where you get recharged. Next week, again, we'll be talking about the fifth, and second, the fifth kingdom and the second coming of Christ. His, his rule and reign. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would go before us today. Again, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all that you do to bring us closer to you, whatever ways and means that you desire to do, whether it's a person that speaks into our life or a friend or a relative or somebody that's been praying for us, Lord, or whether it's simply a word from you that comes uh, like a still small voice being filled with the Holy Spirit, understanding your word and understanding your truth, Lord God. Lord, I pray that we would renew our commitment to walk with you and to be strong in you, not in our own strength. We would reckon, recognize our need and perhaps our need to repent and to change and to forsake our sinful ways. There's always time, Lord, to examine our hearts before you and to get right with you while we're breathing. For those that don't know you, I pray, Lord God, that you would do a mighty work. For those that may hear this message today or messages of the gospel that are going out from around the world right now, from other places, Lord, I pray for a mighty work, mighty powerful, even, Lord, for a revival, we dare would ask, we dare to ask, because we see it constantly, we see it over and over again, the failures of men and government and political parties to be able to do what you've called us to do, the church. And that's to stand for righteousness, and to share the gospel with the lost and the hurting. Go before us, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, 
book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.